Welcome back. It's Taylor Ray, and this is another episode of On the Outside. As always, I am so happy that you're here. I'm so thankful to have you back. This is actually only our second full-on, full-length episode but our first week has honestly already been kind of a whirlwind. I decided to release three times a week, as I'm sure you know by now, and I'm also doing all of the editing, producing, research, all that good stuff by myself. And I am like, wow, girl, okay, you really want for this three times a week. Okay, love that for you. But the response from you guys has already been so amazing and filled my heart up with so much joy. So thank you once again. Now, today's episode is not only one of my favorite episodes on the podcast, but one of my favorite episodes maybe in my life. I had such an incredible time speaking with Dimitri. We got to meet in person in New York City. That is why I also have some visual clips on our Instagram of me and Dimitri speaking, which just made it so much more fun. There's nothing like an in-person, face-to-face convo, even though I'm, of course, so grateful for our technology today that I get to speak to a lot of my guests virtually. So let's learn a little bit more about Dimitri. In today's episode, I talked to Dimitri Joseph Moise. Dimitri is a Broadway performer who transformed the story of their HIV diagnosis and stepped into a world of advocacy and HIV activism. Currently, Dimitri is Deputy Director of Patient Advocacy at VODR, exploring the intersections between healthcare and democracy. They're from Queens, New York, and went to NYU to study drama as an MLK scholar. They're the 2018 Folio Award winner for Chill Magazine, the 2023 Lambda Literacy Fellowship recipient, and 2023 Ribbon Award recipient presented by Playbill, which recognizes a leader in research, activism, and or outreach, honoring their commitment in stopping the stigma associated with HIV and AIDS and commitment to helping find a cure. In our conversation, we talk about their experience growing up as a first-generation Haitian-American, coming out to their parents as gay and coming out to their parents as HIV-positive, finding their purpose through advocacy, and so much more. Let's start it out by hearing about a time when Dimitri felt like they were an outsider. So I have, despite the times that I have felt on the outside, I am grateful that I've had a really strong community around me. So I've always found community. And one of the places where I found a deep sense of self and community was in my church community growing up. And I'm a recovering Catholic now. But at the time, I was, you know, administering the Eucharist. I was cantering and and leading uh song in worship every week. I would conduct the choir. So it was a big part of my life. And I remember one day we are at church Sunday, whatever, there were like five services. So maybe it was two o'clock, who knows, but we're sitting in the pews and it's time to receive communion. And I'm with my family and we all start to get up 
um, to receive the Eucharist. I'm the last of my family to exit the pew. Um, but then a hand stops me on my chest and I hear, no, you can't go. You have to stay here. And that was an experience with my family a couple months after I came out of the closet, of, you know, as gay. And my family was like, you can't receive the Eucharist because you're living out a mortal sin. And that was the beginning of my like break away from God and the church because after then, I remember getting like my cantor schedule and I'd see, oh, I'm doing one less mass than I normally do. The next month came by, oh, I'm doing three less masses than I normally do. Talk about feeling on the outside. And they were just slowly pushing me out in every way, shape, or form. So I remember it starting with that Eucharist story, just literally being stopped. Like this blessed gift that you've been able to receive since you were seven years old, you no longer can because you're gay. Let's get into our conversation. My name is Dimitri Moise. My pronouns are they, he. And I was born and raised in Queens in a very loving but firm Haitian household, first generation born. Like I said, I'm, I'm so proud of my heritage and where my family comes from. And it's something that my parents never let me forget. And I'm so grateful to them because I think that there is a part of the immigrant experience where, you know, I do have members of my family where their parents came here, had children, and then said, we don't want you thinking about any part of your culture. You need to assimilate to what's happening here in America. And I feel really fortunate because while my parents always reminded me what race was like in America and how it was categorized and how I fit in to the structure of white supremacy. Not that they had that language, but they always reminded me like, this is how America is. At the same time, my, my mom was like, but you will learn how to speak French. You will hear us speaking Haitian Creole in the household. Like, you know what I mean? Like you are going to bring Haitian food to school for lunch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. my mom was like, you're, we're Haitian. Like what, you know? And so I'm so grateful um, to my parents for that because I think that it gave me so much confidence in the sense that um, I, I grew up going to PWIs uh, my whole life, actually, you know, including college, predominantly white institutions and, you know, Catholic Irish. And even though... I was like my own microcosm, just being the only person of color or the one of a few in a sea of many white folks. I never felt put on the outside because of my race. 
Dimitri and I did both go to NYU Tisch, but they were, I think, a year above me. And I truly was constantly starstruck by Dimitri, which you're going to figure out why just hearing them talk in this conversation. One thing we did have in common growing up is that we both sang in the church. I was in the choir. I was like, exactly Sundays, like, five show day like literally it was like <laughs> I have to perform on Sundays like I have a full schedule my dad gave me notes after I sang oh I love it we I finished service and he'd be like okay that was great so my dad would um, also give me yeah notes. literally I proudly sang in the church choir of Visitation Church in Brick New Jersey from the age of five until I was about 17 singing in church was one of the places I felt safest and most able to be myself in my childhood. And I also have so many fond memories, getting notes from my dad, singing with him, practicing my harmonies with him. And it was such a place that I felt called to be a performer and a storyteller for the first time. Let's continue by diving more into Dimitri's story. I mean, such an impactful like experience as a young person. Mm -hmm. How old were you? I was 17. Yeah. And you said that was a couple weeks after coming out to your parents. I think so. Um, I grew up in a Haitian household. I'm first generation born. And I'm so proud to be Haitian. Something also about Haitians is as a kid, I don't have locks on the doors because my parents said, this is my room, not your room. Okay. My laptop that I had for school, my mom said, this is my laptop. <laughs> okay, not yours. <laughs> I paid for it. <laughs> like, you know, and that's just who they were. And so um, I remember working on a project my senior year and I fell asleep w working on my laptop and I guess it was still open. And the next thing I remember is, I kid you not, my mother shaking me vigorously awake, asking me, who is the name of the uh, boy I was seeing at that time? Because she saw fa uh, Facebook messages and she was like, who is this person? Um, and honestly, that was the moment where I had to be like, yeah, I, I'm gay. I've been seeing this boy secretly for the last year. Yeah, the car that you got me, I've been sneaking away to go see him and go on dates and, you know what I mean? And so it was that moment that my mom discovered all that stuff on my laptop, like our conversations yeah. that then just yeah. kind of forced me to finish the job. That was way more dramatic than what <laughs> I suggested. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so overall, this period of your life, very much oh, trauma. Yo, 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 this like, period of my life was V-traumatic. Yeah. V-traumatic. Yeah. Originally, I'd asked Dimitri if coming out, his story was something like what you might see on a TV show. The teen sits their parents down after school and shares the news to be met with their parents' reaction. But as you heard, it was a lot different than that. In a 2023 study by Pew Research Center entitled A Survey of LGBT Americans, Attitudes, Experiences, and Values in Changing Times, Chapter 3 talks about the coming out experience. 54%, so about half of participants, say that all or most of the important people in their life know that they're bisexual, lesbian, gay, or transgender. That also means that about half say that most of the important people in their life do not know. 
When asked how old they were when they first felt they might be something other than straight or heterosexual, the median age across all LGBT adults is 12 years old. Well, when you were like, think of a time that you felt like an outsider, I was like, I had to like dig deep. But what was interesting is that every story I thought of stemmed from my gay identity, like almost every single story. And I don't know why that is, but I found it, I found it really interesting. Because, you know, like when we're, when we feel outside of ourselves, it's probably like because of some sort of identity that we hold that makes us feel like because I'm X, you're putting me on the outside or because I'm, you know, so I just found it interesting that it wasn't race. It wasn't, it was my gay identity. Sometimes we almost lead with a specific part of our identity because all of our identities are so intersectional. Okay, friends, I love talking about intersectionality, so I'm going to try and keep this short. Intersectionality is a term created by Kimberly Crenshaw. It is a framework that arose out of Black radical feminist scholarship that stresses the importance of acknowledging multiple intersecting identities, such as race, gender, class, sexual identity, and the associated systems of power and oppression. So Crenshaw is credited with first calling attention to intersectionality in legal scholarship, and she specifically was discussing it in terms of surrounding anti-discrimination laws, which treated sexism and racism as independent rather than interlocking systems of oppression, which had a compounding and deeply harmful effect by not acknowledging marginalized Black women's experiences with discrimination. Intersectionality is a way to conceptualize our overlapping and interwoven identities. Here, Dimitri talks about being both Black and gay. For me, race comes up a lot more than gender. Most of my stories are about race. So I think it's, uh, I mean, I think we all kind of have those. If I really dug deep, I'm sure I could think about a time that being a woman like made me feel a certain way. but. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense that you're like most of these things that came up for you is because of your your gay identity um, and that facet of yourself. One way to discuss your intersectional identity is to consider your social location. I actually learned the term social location from Dimitri. Social location is a combination of factors that define an individual's place in society. It includes things like race, class, gender, disability, sexuality, religion, age, education, marital status, geographic location, and political view. No two people's social locations may be the same. Being Black, compounded by being a woman or a queer woman, could create a very different set of circumstances and worldview. Each facet of an individual's identity affects their life in different ways. Being a gay white man is not the same as being a disabled gay white man, for example. Both individuals are gay, but the overlapping identities might create a different experience with different access. I could talk about intersectionality all day. It's a topic I find so useful, so layered, and so impactful to our everyday lives. Um, almost 10 years ago now, launched a bullet, but I was engaged. Um, and my parents at the time, and we have a very close relationship now. Um, but at the time, uh, my mom refused to meet him. And my dad was like, I mean, I have to stand with your mom on this, you know? So for me, 
at that time, I'm with someone that I, you know, was saying, here's someone that I want to spend the rest of my life with. Yeah, he's a man. And st even still, they were like, we don't want to meet this person. Especially after hearing some bits and pieces of Dimitri's story, it's really beautiful to hear them say that they would describe their relationship with their parents as close. In our conversation, I also shared about a time when I had a non-binary partner when I was in my early 20s and how my parents reacted. Honestly, they didn't really care in the best way possible. It was barely a conversation, and I feel really grateful for them making me feel like it wasn't really something I needed to concern myself with. They would honestly embrace anyone that I wanted to date. They would love anyone that I loved, and that was a really eye-opening moment for me. I was pretty nervous to talk to them about it, honestly, but I think that was more society's pressure on me versus my parents' pressure. So I'm always grateful for that time in my life. My hope is that, at least when I'm a parent someday, I really hope that my child doesn't even think that they ever need to, quote unquote, come out to me. Like that I'm I will literally so just you. be like, whatever you want, girl. I'm like, so with you. Hope that they don't feel one ounce of trepidation whatsoever because it is so it is I mean I have a million friends but also you hear so many stories like this um so thank you for sharing all of that because even just like unpacking relationships with parents is always a lot for all Donald Trump stunned the political world in 2016 when he became the first person without government or military experience ever to be elected president of the United States that's some important context and an important moment to think about as we head into the next part of our conversation. And it really wasn't until 2016 that I had to start having a real reckoning with myself around my, around my Black identity, which was really interesting. I think because so much of my formative years was centered around like coming out and my gay identity and like going through college like as a gay person and really leaning into that piece of it. I think other part, parts of me and I lead as a human first. And so I think all of the other pieces of me are a portion of what makes me human. And so with all of my identities, I lean into them, but I'm also like, well, there are some days where one is being focused on more than another. And I think for that period of my life until 2016, I was really focused on who I was as a gay person. Mm. What so, in 2016 made you think more about your Black identity? The election. A piece in The New Yorker from 2016 by David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker since 1998, summarizes a lot of my feelings around Trump's 2016 election. It reads, The election of Donald Trump to the presidency is nothing less than a tragedy for the American Republic, a tragedy for the Constitution, and a triumph for the forces at home and abroad of nativism, authoritarianism, misogyny, and racism. Trump's shocking victory, his ascension to the presidency, is a sickening event in the history of the United States and liberal democracy. On January 20th, 2017, we will bid farewell to the first African-American president, a man of integrity, dignity, and generous spirit, and witness the inauguration of a Khan who did little to spurn endorsement by forces of xenophobia and white supremacy. It is impossible to react to this moment with anything less than revulsion and profound anxiety. 
I remember the day after Trump was voted into office. I was taking the bus into the city from my mom's house in New Jersey. It was raining, and I sat in a window seat on a New Jersey transit bus for an hour and a half, looking out the window with my forehead pushed up against the glass and tears streaming down my face. I was 22 years old. Went to school for theater. Taylor and I are buddies from the college years. Yeah. And you know, I feel like we, you were a year above me. I think so. Yeah. I feel like I didn't really engage with you that much, but I saw you from afar and I knew you were a star. Oh, I was like, my oh my gosh. God. I remember you made your like Broadway debut, like right after your graduation. The day I, the day I graduated. What an absolute slay. Yeah. Like you, yeah. I feel like you took a picture. I did take it. You're exactly and correct. I remember seeing it on like I, Instagram or Facebook. And I was like, Dimitri really is winning. I, Everyone cannot compare. Like, no. Dimitri oh, my God. One at life. Like, oh, my gosh. What a dream. It's so funny because when I walked into the theater, I they couldn't have given two. Can, yeah, can we, they couldn't have given, <laughs> I was like, you know, they couldn't give two shits. Yeah, you know I mean. But I was like, can someone take a picture of me, please, on the stage, please? I, I need it. And they were like, yeah, sure. No, I'm so happy that you got it because it was everything. I want you should frame it on your wall. Oh my God. It but it it's funny because that experience, I I, I worked on that project for two and a half years. And that experience also, I think, is what led me to this near like break. Um, in 2016, because that show dealt so much in race in a way that I had never like engaged with, you know, and we're traveling the country. I was on tour and we were in cities where, you know, like the jokes in this show are about being black or being from Africa or having AIDS and we would be in cities where I would literally be like, are you laughing at the jokes or are you laughing at us? Yeah. I can't tell. And that happened in city after city after city. And I had never felt that before in my life, that feeling. Um, and then the election is when it all clicked. Like, oh, that's what it feels like to be Black in America. You were really lucky to grow up in Queens with a loving Haitian household who, yeah, intellectually told you what it was like. But I was immersed in my Haitian culture, you know? And it wasn't until traveling the country and being in cities where my race was so focused on more than anything else. I truly love so much for Dimitri how surrounded they were growing up and continue to be by their Haitian culture. While I also had a lot of influence from my culture, my parents growing up and being born in the Caribbean and then later coming to New York, I definitely had a different experience than Dimitri did. My parents, I'm also first generation. My dad's from Dominican Republic. My mom's from Puerto Rico. But it's, I feel like it's a little bit in the middle of those two dynamics you described, being super, super like aware and educated on and proud of. Not that I don't think my family wasn't proud of, but being like really immersed in that culture versus assimilating. I think I was a little bit in between. Like my parents never taught me Spanish. It is, really? yeah, it's both of my parents' first languages. And I know some, I can get by, I can like pretend, like I have a good my pronunciation's good. So if you like tell me what to say, I can like get by and, you know, 
uh, in my actor life, I would do like voiceovers in Spanish, but I would be like, what's that word mean? Or like, what? Like, I'm definitely not fluent. And some of those dynamics came from my parents coming here as children, uh, not knowing English and that being really difficult for them. Mm. Um, but I think it's, it is, it's tough. You never, it's, it's tough being an immigrant to a new country, but I love for you that you stayed so close to your Haitian roots. Mm. I just read a book about the Haitian revolution and know so much now about Haiti. And you I probably like, could teach me some stuff. The largest influx during the transatlantic slave trade was to Haiti mm. and Haiti produced three fourths of the world's sugar mm -hmm. was developed the largest slave economy in the world they revolted we have been talking a lot about the haitian revolution this semester and i'm like come on haiti wow yeah but also just the way in which the world reacted to yeah. haiti being the only the first and the only free black colony yeah. they punished them for it so we can't have that the information i'm sharing is primarily from my reading of avengers of the new world by dubois to clarify and also fact check myself a little bit, the Haitian Revolution was in 1791. The Haitian Revolution was the only successful interaction by self-liberated slaves ever. So to, to take us back in history a little bit, the enslaved people of Saint-Domingue, modern-day Haiti, were from across Africa. They didn't necessarily see themselves as having anything in common until they were racialized as black by the French colonists of Saint-Domingue. That means these individuals didn't even speak the same language, have the same religion, have the same customs, but they bound and bonded together by their racialization as black enslaved people. They were made to be black because they didn't necessarily identify as that thing when they were living in Africa as separate ethnic groups. And that's super important because these individuals who maybe didn't even speak the same language, who were made to be black and made to be slaves, rose up against France and did the unthinkable. They were an inspiration to enslaved people across the Americas, and they became self-liberated. After that moment, during Haiti's critical period of development, France was determined to ruin them. France sent an armed flotilla of warships to Haiti with a message that the young nation would have to pay France 150 million francs to secure their independence or suffer the consequences. Almost literally at gunpoint, Haiti obviously had to cave to France's demands without much choice. The amount was too much for the young nation to pay outright, so they therefore had to take out loans from France, from French banks with hefty interest rates. Over the next century, Haiti paid French slaveholders and their descendants the equivalent of between 20 and 30 billion of today's dollars. That is how Haiti's economy was decimated. Its future was taken from them, and its reputation was poisoned by France. I hope we can all remember Haiti as a beacon, a north star for Black enslaved people around the Americas who saw that freedom could be real. The first and the only liberated slave colony. That is Haiti. 
Um, okay, I'm done with my <laughs> rant about Haiti. I love that. Come on. <laughs> I'm done with Professor, my rant about Haiti. Professor. <laughs> Taylor Ray. I'm so dead. <laughs> um, but I want to go back. I want to back it up to back, back, your experience back. on tour because you made a couple points of why you felt like, you know, people in these towns, in these cities were laughing at the show because these characters were black because they were African because they had AIDS. At that time, did you have, were you living with HIV at that time? I was not. When did that happen? I, so that, um, I was diagnosed in 2018, the same year that I, I came out very, very quick. So I've been living with HIV for five years now. To clarify, when Dimitri says they were diagnosed in 2018, and that's also the year they came out, they later clarify that by coming out, they're referring to coming out with their status as a person living with HIV specifically, not this being the same year that they came out as gay. Dimitri continues sharing their advocacy work around HIV and the commercials that I always see them in that focus on their HIV advocacy. Well, what I really love about it, honestly, and, you know, this is just the advocate in me, um, we, every month, we speak to communities either virtually or in person um, or like a few times every couple of months about our experiences living with HIV. Um, you know, I focus on a lot of healthcare and democracy issues, and so I lean into that. And a lot of times we're talking to communities who, you know, outside of themselves and their loved ones and their friends, like no one really knows and they don't know how to talk about their status publicly. And so I think, you know, aside from the fact that, yes, like, you know, we're shooting these commercials, we are reaching communities and we're also speaking to, you know, people who work with folks living with HIV so we can help them understand, right? Like this is how you focus on patient-centered care and leading with understanding a person's trauma before you make any assumptions. Let's learn more about Dimitri's experience living with HIV. Anyway, another thing about me is I'm HIV positive. To get to this point, I mean, I'm sure it's been a journey from 2018 to now in sharing this and being... Um, vulnerable and transparent and also having a platform around living with HIV. So what has that journey been like? It has been, um, it's been a wild one. Um, Something that I say often is I view this all as a very dark blessing um, because I have walked into my purpose and that's something that God told me was going to happen. And I just was literally crying on my bathroom floor, like, what are you talking about? Um, And now I look back and I'm like, wow, um, God wasn't joking there. But at the same time, my diagnosis brought me to some, brought me to the darkest points in my life. And um, I made the decision to come out pretty quickly. And the reason was because at the time I was working with um, an LGBTQ media brand and I was managing a magazine that was under this brand. And um, the editorial director at the time 
knew that I was positive because for a few months I was just like, I was not able to write. I was in the few months after finding out, um, even though life kept going and like deadlines passed, like I just kind of, I halted. And I finally had to tell her, this is what's been going on. And she was like, I had a feeling that you were going to tell me you were positive. And I was like, why would you know that? And she said, the amount of people who have told me in my lifetime, their HIV status, I could feel it in my bones. A few months had passed and, and she reached out to me again and was like, hey, so there's a segment for this magazine that I run focused on living with HIV um, and, and issues surrounding HIV, um, both socially and politically. She was like, there's a segment called I'm the First, and I think that you would be really great for it, and I want to pitch you for this. And I know that it would be your coming out, and it would yeah. be really big. She was like, but also knowing you, like, I think this could be healing for you too. And I spent some time and meditated on it and prayed on it. And ultimately, like, this was that moment where God was like, I told you you're about to walk into your purpose. And flew to LA, um, filmed my story, you know, did the interview, did the thing. But the segment wasn't about living with HIV. The segment was actually about being the first in your family to do anything. And so for me, it was the first in my family to go to American college um, because my parents both came here from Haiti. So I was the first to go to school here. Um, but it was also my coming out. HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. It's a virus that can only infect humans and leads to the weakening of the immune system. The immune system is the body's system for fighting disease. HIV can lead to AIDS. AIDS stands for acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, which means the immune system has been made less effective by HIV. It's important to note that you cannot have AIDS without being infected with HIV, but people can and do live long lives on treatment with HIV and never develop AIDS. Once you have HIV, the virus stays in your body for life. There's no cure for HIV, but with treatment, Living a life undetectable is very possible. You would refer to it as coming out with HIV. I would. I would. Um, because um, I think so few when I came out um I quickly realized how few people who looked like me shared my experience um, were living as publicly mm. and openly as HIV positive. Mm -hmm. And realizing that, I do, I do consider it a coming out yeah. because, you know, I think with being LGBTQ, you know, we stand in the millions, right? And we have like such a history that we can have a conversation now about, I hope my kids don't have to come out one day, right? Right. Um, but 
when you contract HIV, right? Like that's a life altering illness. It's something that eventually you're going to have to disclose to a partner. Mm-hmm. Like there are all these things that happen and making that decision to say, yes, I'm HIV positive. That's a real marker that you put on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one of my dear friends, um, an older gay man, one of the first uh, people I told, he said to me, really think about who and how you share your status because it's a very precious piece of information. And what you do with it really matters mm-hmm. because there are situations where like, I, I talk to communities where you know, sharing your status can mean going to jail, being criminalized for whatever reason, um, can put you in harm's way. Someone can harm you um, because they may not know enough about what it means to be living undetectable. When your viral load is undetectable, you can no longer detect the virus in your body, which means you cannot pass HIV. It cannot be spread through sex, and it's safe to become pregnant and breastfeed without passing the virus onto your baby. There are um, all sorts of ways that people who are living with HIV are criminalized. Um, And so being able to live this publicly, you know, it really did feel like I'm coming out. It really did feel like a Diana Ross. Uh. (laughs) Absolutely. If only I had the rights to use that song right here, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Someday. I sent my parents a video before the feature came out. So you sent them a video of like your interview? No, a video telling them that I was HIV positive. Just like a video you recorded? Like a selfie style video? Yep. How did that go? Um, It was the right way to do it. Okay. Okay. Because I think my parents are like me in that I prefer to just like get news and then like be on my own to process it. And that was such, that was such a piece of news that like, you know, when you come out as gay, one of the first things you're told is you're going to get HIV, you know? And in a really sad way at that time, I was like, well, I literally fulfilled this dark omen that you have put upon me. And so in one way that I was trying to protect them, I also was like, I can't tell you this in person. Like, I just can't do it because I don't know. I think I will literally blow up. Like, I don't know what will happen. I asked Dimitri how it felt to be doing this work as an advocate and an activist. Whether I have wanted to admit it or not, I feel like I've always been an educator. Um, And so I feel really fortunate that I have been able to utilize my story as a vehicle to put a face to the virus and humanize what it looks like living with HIV, but also bringing that education um, to folks because there is so much misinformation and disinformation that exists out there. And um, studies show that half of, Amer- half of all Americans say they don't know enough about HIV. And an overwhelming majority of Americans agree that stigma still exists. And so for me, 
I work on the treatment and prevention side, right? Making sure that I help folks get to the life-saving medication that they need in order to get to undetectable. Um, and living undetectably with HIV, for those of you who don't know, means that I cannot transmit the virus. As long as you stay undetectable and stay on your treatment, you cannot transmit the virus, not through sex. You can't transmit it. And science has, has proven that. But stigma still exists. And I truly believe that it's stigma that is killing us. Mm. Stigma is what is preventing people from even going to get tested in the first place. Yes. Um, I know someone who just lost their ex-lover to age-related complications, a young Black man who in 2023 still couldn't tell anyone, not even that my friend knew. And they ex-lovers, and they had been together for decades. And this person passed away, didn't ask for medication. And this is 2023, you know, and studies show as well that at the current transmission rate of HIV, one in two black men, queer men will be, will be identified as HIV positive in their lifetime. One in two of us. I linked that study that Dimitri references on my website, which you can find in the show notes. That study says, if current HIV diagnosis rates persist, about one in two gay black men and one in four gay Latino men in the United States will be diagnosed with HIV during their lifetime, according to a new analysis by researchers at the CDC. Because as beautiful as this journey is, um, it's a really tough road because we got to make sure that people know that the epidemic still rages on in the black community and we don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm so thankful for you and your your ability to educate others because I think that is exactly what you just said. You said the stigma is what is killing people. And that is so important because lack of information is crucial. Mm -hmm. And I think I see myself as an educator also. And I think when people don't have the information, like having information allows you to deconstruct those stigmas mm -hmm. and those stereotypes and those preconceived notions because you know more. If we look at HIV diagnoses by race and ethnicity, we see that Black Americans are most affected by HIV, as Dimitri said. In 2021, Black people accounted for 40% of all new HIV diagnoses. Additionally, Latinos are also strongly affected and account for 29% of all new diagnoses. The most affected subpopulation is Black, gay, and bisexual men. Do you mind if I share a story? I never do, please. <laughs> this just happened. So I was speaking in New Orleans um, at um, the annual conference for the National Alliance of State and Territorial AIDS Directors. And over the last year, I was part of uh, an advisory panel, and we helped develop um, their newest edition of a trauma-informed toolkit for providers who are working with clients living with HIV. So um, essentially, they asked me to come down to New Orleans and speak on the toolkit and talk about my experience and talk about how it relates to you know all of the tools that we're asking providers to utilize with their patients. And I knew I was doing this for 
months. Okay. I I had this gig for months. When did I decide to write my 10-page, 20-minute presentation? The morning of. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be there at 1 p.m., maybe 10.30 a.m. I am on the computer furiously typing. That morning, also, I had a panic attack. And it was sobbing as I was recalling and remembering these experiences, right? And I realized I procrastinated for months because I didn't want to have to go there again. And I waited until the very last minute to do it. Um, but it was in that moment where, listen, I wrote 10 pages out in like two hours, okay? So that, so honestly, I was Good like, I was like, honestly, slay. <laughs> <laughs> Work through the trauma, but quickly, <laughs> quick, quickly, quickly, time limit. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it was truly like in that moment that I was like, wow, even today, something like this, like I am going to speak on something that I helped develop that is an extension of me and my experience. And I'm still feeling these feelings. It never goes away. I loved this conversation with Dimitri and I felt so moved, energized, empowered, and just honestly had the best time talking to him. A couple months ago, I don't remember what I was talking to my mom about. I talked to my mom every single day and Aww. she said that I was the bravest person that she knows. Stop. I could cry right now. I could melt. Oh. And so I, I had never really thought I, I didn't really think of myself as brave. But since then, I tell myself every day, you're brave. You can say do this. You're you brave. <laughs> <laughs> and I pass on mm. to you that I think you're brave. I think I see your bravery because I think that's such a beautiful word. Like someone to call you brave. Like, wow. I think it's so, I think it wow. means so much. And yeah, so I think you're brave. I'm going to receive that. Thank you so much. I'm not very, I love you so much. I'm really bad at receiving um, amazing gifts like that. So I'm just going to say thank you. And you are also brave. And I see you too, babe. The work that we do and the work that so many other people are doing in yeah. all of these spheres, like it is fucking brave. Yeah. Okay, friends, that is this week's show. One thing Dimitri said that really stuck with me is that stigma is what is killing HIV-positive folks more than anything. Issues like homophobia, structural racism, and access to healthcare in the United States are huge barriers for people to feel safe in accessing treatment to become undetectable. Being diagnosed with HIV does not mean living a life of isolation or shame. You can live a fulfilling, involved, healthy, long, and thriving life. You can follow Dimitri at Dimitri Moise Official. As always, a full transcript of the episode along with citations can be found on my website. All those links are available in the show notes. See you out there. <laughs>